If you can back up to that passage, please, real quick. I want you to notice as you're working through this very hard passage as he's talking about how God is is willing to destroy the earth or how the earth heaves at the mention of this. It also says this right near the end. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And so even in Nahum, the same idea, the same thing is true. Even as hard things are said, always the prophets or the writers or the, the, the people speaking will always bring us back to the hope that we have in Christ. So as a starting point today, if you will, uh, uh, a note, if you're a note taker, the wrath of God triumphs over sin. So many only view God as loving and gracious. The Bible clearly affirms those attributes, but also shows God's anger and judgment. The purpose of God's wrath or judgment is to triumph over sin. So if you're here and you're, if you're a note taker and we're, if we go too fast, we split the note in half, just remember in our app where it says notes, all these are in the app for you. So if we, if we go too quick, they're all there. Any verse outside of Isaiah that we use today, that'll be in there too. So many only view God as loving and gracious. We love to hear that God is good, God is love, God is forgiving, God is merciful. That is the God that we love to portray. That is the God that we love to believe in. Right? That's the God who welcomes us in no matter where we are, no matter what we have done. That is a God I am incredibly grateful for considering my past. That I, I, am, I am deeply grateful for a God, to a God, who is gracious and merciful and forgiving. But that is not a complete view of God. The Bible paints us or portrays to us a God who is both holy and loving. And in that holiness, he is justice, he is judge, he is wrathful, he gets angry, he is angry at sin, angry at sinful people. He is angry at people who oppress other people. And that he does, at moments, pour out his wrath. Now, we have to ask the question, then, what is, he, what is his wrath for? What is his anger for? What is his judgment for? And I think what we'll get to see today in Isaiah is we get a clear glimpse into, or a clear portrayal of, what God's wrath or judgment can be for. So let's pick up Isaiah chapter 9. We'll pick up in verse 8. It says, The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. Let's, take a, let's pause there for a second. I want to catch us up to where we are in the story, and then we'll read that verse again. Like I said earlier, God is speaking to his people. Now at this time, the vast majority of his people exist in what is now two nations, Israel and Judah. So the, the, the people of God at one time called Israel split in half, not really in like 50-50, but they split in half making two nations. So imagine this, the people of God, the people who worship God, couldn't get along so much that they make two nations out of it. How well do you think they're following God at that moment? Right? But how relevant is that to us today? Right here in America, we have people of God on both sides of issues often. We have people who love Jesus, follow Jesus, and sometimes see things differently. And in a nation that is being incredibly divided and divisive, who is pitting one view against another view without finding any common ground, this is a relevant thing, right? And so what we see here is this nation, these followers of God have split in half. They've made two nations. And the beginning of Isaiah, the first five chapters, is really calling out the problems inside the nations, 
And we're going to see some of those today, so we don't have to recap the whole thing. But what we're going to see is as God is calling out specific sins, specific things that this entire group of people that are supposed to be followers of God, specific things they are doing. Isaiah 6, what we get is Isaiah's moment in front of God. So actually, the Isaiah, the prophet, the one writing this book that we're studying, Isaiah has this moment where God reveals himself. Jesus reveals himself to Isaiah. And Isaiah sees Jesus seated on a throne. And he gets a glimpse into that moment. And he gets to hear the angels worshiping the God who was and is and is to come. And they get this beautiful image right there. And, and immediately, the man Isaiah immediately confesses his own sin. And really what he says, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. And that's not something as simple as someone who is lying or saying wrong things. This is, what he's saying is he is just confessing that this people confess to be followers of God with their mouths, but their lives live something else. That their mouths are portraying them as followers of God, but their lives, their lives betray that. And in that moment, God does something amazing. And I want to put it on the screen for you. It's Isaiah 6. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim, that's another word kind of for angel, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my lips, or he touched my mouth, excuse me, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So this is exactly right out of Isaiah 6. Here's this moment. Isaiah is confronted with the holiness and just the majesty and just the vast, big picture of God, if you will. As much as a human being can take in, he is taking in. And his immediate response is not to ask questions that he's always had about the Bible, Right? His response is not to go, you know, I've always wondered about this. Or his, his, his first response wasn't even to worship. His first response, as he sees true holiness, his first response is, I'm not holy. I'm fallen. I'm broken. And the, things that comes to, the thing that comes to his mouth is we profess one thing and live another. And so what God does is God, through his messenger, sends a burning coal to touch Isaiah's mouth. The very place that Isaiah confessed is this broken part of him God sends this burning coal to. Now I know in this, in this miraculous moment where he says your sins are clean, your sins are no more, I'm assuming in this moment that that coal didn't absolutely light Isaiah on fire, burn his lips off, right? But should it have? Yes. And in this, in a little way, and we're going to see this today, we get to see what the judgment of God or what the wrath of God looks like, the way God forgives Isaiah and the way that Isaiah is revealed, it just sees his fallenness, is this way that looks incredibly painful. That from the fire of the altar, a burning coal goes and it heals Isaiah. And that's our context today. We need to see judgment. 
God's judgment, God's discipline, even God's wrath is a purifying fire. So let's just, let's hold that from it. Let's work through the passage. So verse eight, the Lord has sent a word against Jacob and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say with pride and an arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. So now we've, we've shifted from the people Judah, the nation Judah, and now God, for just a few chapters, 9, 10, 11, is speaking to Israel. So again, people of God have separated, but they're still considered people who are supposed to be followers of God, like churches that meet in different places and sometimes believe you know, specific nuances of different things that meet in different places. God is speaking on behalf of uh, God is speaking on behalf of Israel now, and he's speaking uh, and has been speaking to Judah for the first several verses. And here's what he says, you're suffering with pride and arrogance. And here's what he says. So imagine this, God has already allowed Israel to be wiped out once. There's a surrounding army. army. Syria is the, is the big empire during all this story that is just looming over Judah, Israel, Samaria, Philistine, uh, just all kinds of places. Syria is waiting, and so people are tending to buddy up. Countries are buddying up and trying to form packs and defend themselves against the big empire, but even that has infighting, so one will war with another nation, and they've both been threatening Judah, and now it's Israel's time. And God is reminding them, listen, just as you have been destroyed by others, and this is a direct result of you not being obedient, Right? And, and I've, I've used this image, and, and this has some, some biblical imagery in it, but when there's a people of God, and I just, I imagine like God's hand of blessing on them. Like when they are walking, and no one's perfect, right? So when they're walking in lives of repentance and obedience, and they're doing their best, and when they make mistakes, when they, when they mess things up, they're promptly returning to God and confessing their failures and, 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 and just being forgiven by God and walking in that, his hand just rests over them, and, and because of that, the nations surrounding them just can't get to them. And so then when they become disobedient, God calls out to them, listen, here's, you're wandering away. And they, they can either return or they can continue wandering away, and if they continue wandering away, I just imagine God just, just lifting his hand off them a bit. And as he does that, the nations surrounding them just, just take a toll on them. So God has done that. He's lifted his hand, not completely, but he's allowed things to take place. And he says this, now listen to your pride and arrogance, Israel. For when the others destroyed you because of me, you've said this, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. Here's what they're saying. I know you've allowed others to destroy us, God, but we're going to rebuild and we're going to make it better. I know this nation came in and destroyed our, our city or our country or our streets or trees and burned down our crops, killed our animals. That's okay. We can build it better. Just hear the pride and the arrogance that they have as they speak to God this way. Verse 11, but the Lord raises the adversaries of Razan against him. That's the king of Syria and stirs up his enemies. So here's what I want you to hear. God is sovereign over humanity and human history. 
And in this moment, God is going to use a pagan nation, a nation that does not worship God, a, wor- a, a nation called Syria, under this king, Raisin, and he is going to allow them to come in and destroy. In fact, more than, and I want you to hear this, more than allow them to destroy Israel, he's going to cause them to destroy Israel. So I want you to hear this. The God of the universe, who is loving and graceful, merciful and kind, is also holy, just, and angry and often or and, and sometimes wrathful. And so what God is going to do is He's going to use, He's going to use this ungodly nation, this nation that does not worship God. He's not only going to lift his hand off Israel, but he's going to scoot them in to wipe out that nation. And as he's prophesied before, I'm going to wipe out 90% of your nation, but I'll keep a remnant. So God is the one who causes. But God is the one who is sovereign over humanity and human history. Now, let's put a pin in that, and I want one disclaimer for the entire day. Right? So if you're sleeping, wake up for this one sentence, and you go back to sleep. All right? Just in case you wake up later and don't know I said this. I'm not making any broad stroke statements about national disasters. I'm not talking about tsunamis that have recently happened. I'm not talking about Pearl Harbor or 9-11. I'm not speaking about those things. Because God didn't say, hey, I'm doing this, and then did it, and I was there to go, oh yeah, that's what God did. Because then I would. As crazy as I might sound, I would. But I don't know what God was doing there. So I'm not saying God did, but I'm saying in this case, God did. And in some of those other cases, God can. And that is between him and whoever, and and I don't know. And where the scripture is silent, or where God is silent, I want to remain silent. But for this today, Syria is going to devastate Israel, and God is not only going to allow it, God is going to cause it. All right, we good? Does that make sense? I'm not making any grand statements about anything else other than God can do that, and in this case, God did do that. Verse 12, the Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west will will devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger, God's anger, has not turned away. And his hand, God's hand, is stretched out still. So God is sending these nations to come in and wipe out his people. Now, please understand, this is after decades of people calling them specifically to repentance. Right? This is after decades of prophets coming in and saying, listen, you're oppressing one another. You're wealthy or oppressing your poor. You're, you're, you're worshiping literally other idols from other nations that surround you. You're bowing down to carved figures that other people that don't worship God worship. You're, you're including this. You're, you're ignoring me. You, you've, you've stopped going to worship. You've stopped going and making sacrifice. You've stopped following me. You've quit raising your children to follow me. You're allowing your kids to marry outside their faith and, and wander away from their faith. And after decade and decade and decade of God's promises and them still not relenting, still not repenting, still not returning, still not changing, God says, listen, I'm not only lifting my blessing, I'm going to cause you to get wiped out. And so God lifts his hand off, stands back, and sends Syria, Philistine, Samaria, Assyria, time and time again, sends these people in to wipe them out. But I want you to hear this one sentence at the end of verse 12. 
For all this, his, meaning God's, anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Like this isn't the end of it. If you're a note taker, sins of pride and arrogance. Even in defeat, Israel has chosen not to return to God. So God has unleashed punishment on them by sending another army to destroy them. Even still, their response is that they can rebuild on their own. So God has done this, and they said, cool, don't worry about it. God, send anybody you want. We'll rebuild. We'll make it better. Can we get the notes? Can we get them onto one screen by any chance, please? So God is saying, listen, I'm going to send these people in. They're going to devastate the city. They're going to devastate the country. They're going to take out the region. And and then the first reason that he gives clearly is for pride and arrogance. It's for the people's self-pride and self-arrogance, thinking they do not need God. So God's wrath in this setting is God letting them know what it means to need God, right? Verse 13, the people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So here's their response. I just want you to get this, like think it's almost a linear picture. God says, hey, this is what you're doing wrong, and I love you. I want you to stop doing that wrong, and I want you to return to me. Nothing. Silence. Earmuffs, right? So he says it again, send somebody else. Hey, listen, here's what you're doing wrong. In fact, you've started to add this in now. I really, I, I, I love you. I want you to stop. This is not good for you. This will ruin you. Return to me. Again, silence, hard-heartedness, stiff-necked, not listening. And so God allows things to happen. Listen, I'm going to lift my blessing off you and the harvest won't come. I'm going to lift my hand of blessing off you and the rain won't water your crops. Now, will you listen? And instead, they run further away from God. So finally, God says, here's the deal. I'm going to let the nations around you come in and devour you. Will you return to me? One last time, will you come back? Will you return to me? Nothing. So he does. So he says, listen, not only am I going to let them, I'm going to cause them. And here's what they do. Verse 13, the people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. They just don't turn back to God. Verse 14. Can you see how we do this today? Can you see in our lives where we can show up Sunday after Sunday and we can hear about surrendering all of ourselves to Jesus? We can read our Bibles Monday through Friday, Saturday, whatever days you read. Spend your quiet time. Go to your community groups where a a recurring theme in your life keeps being prompted. That the spirit inside you keeps showing you, hey, this is not good for you. This is not in line with what God has for you. And yet you keep stuffing that voice back down. You'll find everything falls apart. And you're like, well, what happened, God? Yeah, God's been saying, listen, I've I've been showing you this time and time again. Verse 14, so the Lord cut off from Israel, head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and the honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Sinful people often result in sinful leadership, right? So we're a voting nation, right? You kind of get what you ask for, true? Right? And, and listen, I don't care what side of the aisle you sit on and 
one of the last three presidents you voted for, right? I'm, I'm, that's that I can make that assumption. You, you get what you ask for. And you get what flows out of your heart. Like you, what kind of people we are will show us what kind of people we will have lead us. That's what he's saying. So the Lord cut off from Israel, head and tail, the palm branch and reed, palm branch and reed in one day. He says the elder and the honored man, so the leaders, is the head he's cutting off. And the prophet, the spiritual leaders who teach lies is the tail, right? Sinful people result in sinful leadership. Now you can imagine back here it's just sinful, prideful, arrogant people. Now it's got sinful leadership too. Are they getting closer to God or further from God? It's getting worse, right? So sinful people result in the sinful leaders. When the body of people are sinful, they seek leaders who are like themselves rather than looking to those who can lead them back to God. We see this in Isaiah's time and we see it in ours. I would go one step further and say, actually, people begin to reject people that will lead them back to God. Not only do they not want them in charge, but they reject them outright. And I just, I say this, I don't know how anybody runs for political office anymore. Your life will be destroyed if you do. Either side. Like, who wants to do that? But we have caused that as a nation, we've bought into that. We've bought into the politics. We've bought into the name-calling. We've bought into the lying. We've accepted that politicians lie. Like, that's just a true statement. Like, politician equals liar. Like, we've accepted that. What kind of sinful people, what kind of sinful nation just accepts that? Right? That falls on us, not just the people doing it. Verse 17, Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, and has no compassion on the fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The Lord doesn't even rejoice in the fact that a new generation is being raised up. The Lord doesn't even cover over the widow and the orphan anymore. He's lifted his hands so far off this that this ship has sailed so far away, if you will that he is not looking forward to another rebellious generation, and he's even stopped for caring about the people that are helpless in this situation. Now listen, he says it again. Verse 17, does this sound familiar? For all his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Right? Verse 12, repeated in verse 17, word for word. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. When God's word has repetition in it, it is very, very, very important. Very important, right? Like he is repeating himself as if, listen, you need to hear this more than one time. I'm gonna say this over and over and over again like a chorus in a song until the one thing that you remember is this. Now remember, this is what he wants you to hear. For all this, his anger has not turned away. God's anger hasn't even left yet. And his hand is stretched out still. He is still in the midst of punishing or disciplining his people. Repeated this, repeats this. He says it until we get it right. Verse 18, for the wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickest of the forest, thickets of the forest. And they roll upward in a column of smoke. 
Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. And they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is outstretched still. Sound familiar? Three times in about 10, 15 verses. Here's what's going on. He's calling out now the infighting. Ephraim, Manasseh, Judah... These are the tribes of Israel, right? When the nation was formed, there were 12 tribes of Judah that God called a nation together. And now he's saying, listen, not only is there infighting and separation, but now you're devouring one another. You're actually feeding off one another. And one is eating and letting another starve, and one is feeding on the other. And he's just pointing out, listen, it's not only you against the world, but now it's you turned against one another. And if there's an image that fits our nation today, it's that. They were no longer one people, but many. And politics today and our culture today seek to divide us by putting us in categories and saying one is exclusive from another. So self-seeking results in self-destruction. It says, when the people of God now or in the past seek themselves and not one another, destruction is always the result. The only way to live for God is to deny oneself and to love one another. The, an, the, the antithesis, the exact opposite of what they're doing is to deny yourself and love one another instead of love yourself and deny one another. And they've been feeding on one another, devouring one another for now decades. So John 15, Jesus speaking, he says this, this is my commandment. So we need to hear this. This is a commandment from Jesus. As you love one, you, that you love one another as I have loved you, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Greater love has no one like th than this, that he would lay down his life for the person next to him. Right? That's why we honor our military, our civil servants, police, firefighters, people that go in. They run in when everybody's running out, Right? But it doesn't have to be that. It's about serving one another. It's about putting one another, the people around you, ahead of yourself. And right now, Israel and Judah are doing the exact opposite. It's all about the self and not the one another's. Let's start back at verse 21. It says, Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. Listen, for all his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Again, God's wrath continues. God's punishment continues. Chapter 10, verse 1. Woe to those. Now, if you remember back from, a, uh, we did a, a message about a month ago. Woe is a great distress you bring on yourself or a great harm you bring on yourself. Woe to your, it is brought upon you. In these cases, it's because of what they've done themselves. He says, woe to those or great pain and distress to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? 
So the people of God are clinging to whatever it is they call that is their own, their own wealth, their own food, their own home. And God is simply reminding him, you have nothing if it's not for me. And I've told you to take what I've given you and steward it well. Part of that storing is to care for people who have less or nothing. In the Bible, it is often the widow and the orphan. Culturally, the widow could not own homes or have a business. And so if a woman lost her husband and didn't have any sons to help care for her, she would become destitute in in a short time. Orphans, same thing, no inheritance, no business, no nothing. Often, orphans were just left to fend for themselves. So widows and orphans in most of the Bible are the people that just don't have a way to create for themselves, to feed for themselves, to create an income for themselves. Today, consider this. I think if the Bible were written today, and this is just me speaking, this is not God, just hear me. If the Bible were written today, I believe there'd be a third category. It'd be the single parent, right? That's the one. See, widows now can have businesses, own homes, have an inheritance, do all that. And I'm not diminishing that. We need to care for our widows, and the orphans, there's at least there's some mechanisms in place, but we clearly need to care for our orphans, right? Like that we, we should see those things, that we should still have this same call, that we would care for the marginalized, the weak, the poor, the oppressed, whether that be ethnic groups or, or people groups or socioeconomic status or whatever. But the thing that I think needs to be said is the single parent. How many people are parenting kids for whatever reason, on their own, so they're working as much as they can, and they're trying to raise their children, do homework with their kids, and trying to survive. And I think if the Bible was written today, I think they'd be in there. That that would become the modern-day widow, if you will. The one who just can't seem to make ends meet, no matter how hard they try. Injustice and oppression. God repeatedly warns his followers to care for the poor and the marginalized in response to his grace and kindness shown to us. God responds to injustice and oppression by making people helpless and oppressed. So here's God. Remember how gracious and kind and generous I've been to you. In fact, I sent my son to die on a cross for you. I've given everything so that we could be in relationship and you could have everything you need. Everything you need is found in Christ. And God's just saying, listen, I've given you everything. And so I've told you with with all that I have given you, with all that I've blessed you with, I want you to now act like that to people around you for the sake of the gospel that people would meet Jesus, but also just because as a response to God being generous to us, we should be generous people to others. And we should have an eye for the marginalized, an eye for the poor, And oftentimes we don't. We grab everything we can and we hang on as tight as we can to all we have. And God says, if you don't repent of that, I'm going to make you helpless like the orphan. I'm going to make you hungry like the homeless. I'm going to make you alone like the widow. I'm going to make you struggle like the single parent. I'm going to mete out what you're doing to other people to you because I have already blessed you with more than you deserve. Now you go and act the same way. You go give to those who don't deserve. Verse 4, nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. So here's what he's saying. Listen, the other marginalized group, those who have lost loved ones, those who are prisoners, whatever. He's continuing that thought, and then he wraps it up right here. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Sound familiar? 
again and again and again. And I think here's what God is saying. Listen, I've got far more wrath than you have patience. I'll break you. Whatever it looks like, I can break you. Like I'm not even close to done. If you're not ready, I'll just keep going. Four times in just a few verses, really, he repeats this. For all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Verse five, woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. This is God speaking. Woe to Assyria, the people that are, that are going to wipe out Israel. He says, and woe to them. Now I'm coming for them too, in other words. But he says this, and I want you to hear this. The rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Not only am I allowing Assyria to do this, am I allowing Syria to do this, am I allowing Philistine and, and Samaria, not only am I allowing these nations to, to do this to you, but the rod in their hands is my anger. I'm causing it, he says, because nothing else has caused you to listen. Against a godless nation, verse six, I send him, meaning the people of Assyria, and against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. That is something I hope I never hear. And it's something I hope as a nation we never hear. That God would say the rod in the hands of your enemy is me and my anger coming for you. Judgment, wrath, and historical events. We must tread carefully when we tie historical tragedies together with pronouncements of God's wrath. However, in the case of Assyria destroying Israel, it is exactly what God said he would do. God uses events in history to shape and purge us as he so desires. God uses humans and human history to shape those he calls his own as he desires. And he doesn't do this quickly. It's not, hey, you make one mistake, man, and I'm wiping out a nation. This comes after decade of, decades of God's pouring out his heart. That he says, listen, wrath is my final solution to get you, to cause you, to move you to the place where I can use you. See, the gospel is a gospel that contains wrath. We don't, we don't like to talk about it. In fact, it's not really, this isn't the way to grow your church. Preach this message a lot, right? But it is the way to grow the believers. This is a piece of the message that we need to hear. See, God created you, loves you, designed you, called you to be his child, his son or daughter, worshipers of his, that we, that we would spend our lives crying out, Daddy, to God. That's how he created us. But because we have chosen to sin or to go another way, to make ourselves God and tell God we know better for our lives than you do, we're going to do it our way, which is ultimately what sin is. That there, like infidelity in a marriage, has, has separated us from God. And so God could have let us go. God could let Israel and Judah wander as far away as they want to. Why is God intervening with wrath and judgment? Because God wants them back. And so God will push them as far as it takes to get them to return. So instead of allowing us just to choose our way into hell and just say, you know what, I'm going to do it my way, I'm going to run that way, and God just going, hey, here's what's the end of that. It's not good. 
Just go ahead and do it, though. Instead, in God's relentless pursuit for humanity, God became flesh. God came down, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, God in human form, God in the flesh, fully God and yet fully human, and lived the life that we are called to live but fail. Die the death that we deserve, and he didn't. And to take on himself on the cross the wrath of God. That the wrath of God, the wrath of God that I deserve is meted out on Jesus on the cross. There's this pivotal moment, we'll look at it in, in, uh, as we get to Good Friday in just three or four weeks, three weeks. We'll look at that moment where Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's at that moment where the separation of God and Christ occurs. That thing that we have caused that he never deserved. It's not the pain of the nails in his hands, though that's important. It's not that he, that he is beaten and crucified, though that is necessary. It's that at one moment in time, God separates himself from Christ and pours out his wrath on Jesus. And he does so that he, so that he doesn't have to pour it out on me and you. Jesus resurrects from the grave to give us new life empowers us to be everything that God has called us to be. Not perfect, not flawless, not without sin, not here on this earth, but that we're empowered to follow Jesus. Isaiah 6, I want to put this passage up again that we read earlier. And Isaiah said, woe is me, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, then one of them, seraphim, flew to me and said, having, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the ire, from the fire altar, and he touched my lips, he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. We have a response. We're given a choice of how to respond to God. Now this is, I want to speak specifically to you who call yourself a follower of Jesus. When you're a follower of Jesus, you have these seasons where you're, you're pressing in as much as you can. Whatever causes that season, whether it's hardship or whether it's just out of love for God, you're just pressing in as close as you can. And then we all have seasons where we wander away. It's in those seasons that God calls us back. It's in those moments we have, option, we have, we have choices to make. Do we, do we continue in sin or do we return? And I... And, when we don't return, when we continue to run, where we plug our ears and we harden our hearts and we just run towards the sin and idolatry that we desire, it's in those moments that God, that God allows discipline, punishment, whatever you want to call it, on us that we might return. What parent doesn't discipline their child to cause them to live well for their best for the outcome of what is best for them. Hebrews 12 says this, and have you forgotten the exhortation that I address, that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son or daughter whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there 
whom his father does not discipline. What child of God will not undergo the discipline of God? And when God comes in discipline, it is to correct you. It is not to condemn you and leave you. It is to bring you back. If you're here and you would not consider yourself a follower of Jesus, all of this is available to you. That in Christ, grace and forgiveness and mercy is available to you. And you'll enter into this this relationship that we're all talking about, where we have good days and bad days, but where we have a God who loves us every day, puts his spirit inside us, equips us to live the way he's called us to live. And some days he just rewards us and loves on us and, and, and comforts us. And other days when we're not listening, God loves us enough to discipline us and call us back. In the gospel, there is that. All until we see Jesus face to face forever. Let's pray. Jesus, as we meet today, it's hard to talk about your discipline. We love talking about the promises of eternity, the forgiveness of sin, the healing of sick, the relief of pain, the drying of tears. And Jesus, clearly that is you. But if we always ignored that there's a penalty to sin, even not just an eternal penalty, but for us who are followers of yours, who are covered with your grace, that there's a penalty for wandering far from you, that discipline, it's there to draw us back. May we learn to love the fact that you discipline us because we know that means you love us. When we stop listening, will you cause us to come back? I pray you'll never let us go. Always call us to obedience, Jesus. So Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.